Please open your Bibles to Zechariah. Probably better said Zechariah, um, chapter 13. This is our evangelism month, and all of our fo- fo- sermons will focus on some element of Christ's work um, or his person and its impact on both unbelievers and believers. So I've got a dual focus today. For the believer, I want you to walk away with a deep appreciation for Christ as shepherd. I want you to see the intertextuality of Scripture. That the Scriptures are not written in isolation. That there is an interdependency that takes place when prophets and apostles write. They know of other writings and so they depend on those writings as they move forward uh, in their prophecy or book. I want you to see that there is an importance of understanding Old Testament for New Testament reading. A lot of the time, a lot of Christians today use the New Testament to reinterpret the Old Testament. That is wrong. We don't reinterpret the Old Testament. The Old Testament stands as it is, as a promise and a prophetic word from God. The Old Testament informs the New Testament. So when you read the New Testament, it is helpful to have a sound Old Testament understanding. And we will see that this morning as we find ourselves in one of my most favorite Old Testament books, which is Zechariah. It is one of the twelve. The twelve is known as the minor prophets uh, to us Protestants. It is uh, one of the twelve that uh, that speaks about the day of the Lord and the coming uh, time of the Messiah. It is called minor, not because it is less than, but only because it is minor in its amount of information that it has. So it's smaller than the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and therefore it's called minor. So don't think of it as being less significant than the major prophets. This book is my favorite because it has the most messianic, that is Christ-related, prophecies in all of the um, prophetic works. Zechariah is the book that speaks about Christ the most in its totality. Because it's only got, what, 14 chapters, I think. Um, Yeah, 14 chapters. It is filled with messianic hope and messianic prophecy. Now, as we go to this Old Testament book, one of the challenges that we have, whether you are in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, is that we don't have the Old Testament or Jewish understanding of scriptures. For instance, in hermeneutics, there is something that is called a cultural script. And you should take note of this because I mention it a lot by defining it. And this is the first time I'm actually telling you what it is. The cultural script is when an author writes to an audience and they have the same culture. They use the same words. They understand the same things. The cultural script is already written, so he does not have to fill in, and this may sound familiar, he doesn't have to fill in the gaps. He doesn't have to repeat words or explain words. For instance, the word rock. When Jews, later prophets, write about a rock, they don't have to explain when they speak about rock in terms of God as a rock. When they speak of the sword, They don't have to explain what is meant by the mere mention of the word sword. To us, we have to go back into history and understand how the Jews would have understood this word sword. We don't have the same cultural script. Does that make sense? So when they write certain things, they leave out a lot. Why? Because the audience that they are writing to already know what these things mean. You find that a lot. In the 12, that is why it is so small. You've got a number of prophetical books that preceded. You have the law, you have the writings, and you have some prophecies that's already been written. So they lean on that, and so they don't have to fill in a lot of things, and they just give you hook words. You find it in the New Testament as well. James, for instance, who is a Jew, writes with a cultural script in mind. Jesus, who is a Jew, speaks with a cultural script in mind. He doesn't have to explain the tabernacle. He doesn't have to explain the feasts. Why? Because they know it. 
We will see that in Zechariah chapter 13. Certain words are being used that is not explained. One such word is shepherd. And normally when we think of shepherd, we think of what chapter in the Bible? Psalm 23 or John chapter 10. Thank you. <laughs> That's the two most prominent books that we think of when we hear the word shepherd. Yet shepherdology starts in the book of Genesis. It speaks of people who go about doing shepherding work. What was Moses? A shepherd, a herdsman. What was David? Shepherd. Interestingly, a lot of the leaders were shepherds. And I will point out the significance of that as we move forward. Shepherd is one of those words that we kind of just gloss over and we think we know the nuances and the meaning when it comes to it being used in Scripture. In an emergency, the shepherd must not only keep watch over his flock or tend his flock or care for his flock, but also protect his flock. He should be willing to die for that little crazy sheep. You do have crazy sheep. And sometimes there's a wandering sheep that does not recognize the smell of a bear. And he goes towards it. That must be a big sheep. The shepherd is responsible to hook that crazy sheep back and keep him safe from that hungry bear. It's his responsibility. One of the significant changes in the way that this word shepherd was used takes place in the ancient Near Eastern context where the word shepherd is used of a king or a leader. That is hugely significant. Israel applied this to their leaders, to the kings of Israel who were to shepherd the flock of God. Second Samuel chapter 5, 2. Chapter 7, verse 7, Jeremiah 3.15 speaks of Israel's leaders who are to shepherd God's flock. In general, it started speaking about leaders given over God's people to take care of God's flock. It's now no longer their flock, but they are given the under-shepherding role to take care of those who belong to God. Even in the New Testament, Peter mentions it. As a fellow shepherd. Jesus speaks to Peter and what does he say? Feed my what? Sheep. It takes on a unique significance when it is used of God. And often when we hear God as shepherd, we think of Psalm 23. And yet, even within that context, there is so much Wealth of information of who God is as shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. Why? Why does he take us to green pastures? Ever thought about that? There is a tenderness, a loving care implicit in God's relationship to his sheep. Listen to Isaiah 40 verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. God cares for his sheep according to their need. So when shepherd, a shepherd leader does not act the way that God acts for his sheep, God judges them. For not doing what they should do on his behalf. That is why Israel's leaders and Judah's leaders were so harshly judged for failing to do their job. God pronounces condemnation and judgment on those shepherds who fail to act the way God acts for his sheep. When authors use this word of people, Figuratively, obviously, because we are not literal sheep. If 
there's tremendous amount of theological significance. Not only for the sheep, but also who their shepherd is. When we come to the book of Zechariah, there's a lot that has been written about shepherdology. And so we have to fill in some of that missing information that he does not take the time to give us. In this book, the author speaks about a shepherd. A shepherd that will be afflicted. Look at me. Look at me now. Look with me. I always say that. Look Look with me at Zechariah chapter 13. And I'm going to read from verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares Yahweh, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. I, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. So let me take some time to build the historical context of this book and this passage. The prophecy was given to call Jews who have returned from exile, that is the Babylonian exile, which Jeremiah prophesied about 70 years in Babylon. They are now returning from that exile so that they would prepare the temple for the coming Messiah. There is tremendous millennial kingdom uh, theology implicit in this book, and that's why I like it so much. There is high expectation of the coming Messiah. And what you have to understand with the Old Testament prophecies is that they don't separate the first coming from the second coming. So when they speak of the coming of the Messiah, it includes the coming of his death, as well as the coming for his reign. Both of them are included in one aspect, and you'll see that quite often, especially in the 12. So when you read that, and this is where a lot of people go wrong, they only see one coming. And since he's already come, that it means that there must be some element of his reign already taking place. And there is, but not fully yet. There's an already, but not fully yet. There is no time between the two comings of Christ in the Old Testament. They they don't give us that time period. They don't need to. That is revealed in the New Testament. They fill in the gap that the Old Testament prophets do not speak about. So Zechariah's ministry takes place during the first generation of the returnees from Babylon, from the Babylon captivity. So this is post-exilic. That is important. Jerusalem by this time has been destroyed by Babylon, utterly laid to waste. The walls are down, the temple has been hugely, tremendously damaged. It is a critical period for the nation of Israel. Now, for 70 years, Israel laid in waste, I should say, Jerusalem laid in waste. This prophecy takes place about two months after the prophet Haggai, for those of you who are doing Haggai, ladies, called the people to rebuild the temple wall and the temple. Two months after that, Zechariah comes about, so they are companions. God, by this time, worked in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to allow the captive Jews to return. They are able to go back. Why? Because they were disobedient, which led them into captivity. Now, they have the privilege of going back to their hometown. And under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Israel had set about starting the rebuilding of the temple and to reestablish worship in accordance with the law of God. Now, after facing continual opposition, which lasted throughout the reign of Cyrus, the inhabitants of Judea, were finally able to begin the rebuilding. This takes place under the reign of Ahasuerus. I'm giving you a lot of history in a short amount of time. Who's Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus. He became the husband of Esther. 
But at the beginning of his reign, he opposed the reconstruction of the temple until Esther comes around and is able to convince him otherwise. Convince him otherwise. So this situation of inactivity lasted for about a decade until the second year of Darius, seen in Ezra chapter 4 and in Esther chapter 2. It was during this time that Agiah and Zechariah were sent to rekindle the desire of the heart of God's people to restart the efforts of rebuilding the temple. So there is a need to get the temple restored. Why? Because there's anticipation of the coming Messiah. So they're thinking millennium. They're not thinking coming to die. Zechariah fills in a little bit of a middle gap. Something that they don't normally think about. He calls them to a spiritual reformation and rebuilding, where Haggai calls them to a physical rebuilding and reformation. So get the temple ready because the Messiah is coming. And in the meanwhile, while you are building the temple, Zechariah says, get your hearts ready because the Messiah is coming. So Zechariah's job was to prepare the people spiritually as they prepare for worship under their king and Messiah. This historical con- context takes place in a time where there's spiritual apathy, despair, brokenness, rejection, leadership failure, and hopelessness. They were looking spiritually like the temple was looking in reality or physically, desolate, abandoned, and dejected. So Zechariah is a call to spiritual reformation during the time when God calls the temple to be rebuilt. What is significant about the temple? Why is the temple important for the nation of Israel? Two reasons. It indicated that they had one God, Secondly, this God dwelt in their presence. So, if the temple is removed from Israel, that means God's presence is no longer visibly seen and experienced amongst God's people. Which means when the temple is restored, God's presence will return. you can already start to see the overlap of the millennial kingdom that is in view over here. A lot of the challenges that we have with Old Testament writing is that it it is interpreted spiritually and not literally. Zechariah writes of a literal reign that is to come. When we get to chapter 14 in years to come, not today, you will see that. There's a literal expectation of the coming one to come down onto the Mount of Olives, which has tremendous significance in the New Testament. The temple was God's dwelling place with his people, but it was destroyed. This destruction was a visual reminder that God had to deal in judgment with his people because of their rejection of his holiness and his presence with them. Now in this context, after being under the Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and after being allowed to return to their home, God is again ready to deal with them. God is again ready to care for them. Not that he did not care while they were in Babylonian captivity, but there is something significant that takes place in chapter 13. God demonstrates his loving care in contrast to the care of the shepherds that they had up to this point in time. Throughout the book, we have references to shepherds. Shepherds who have mistreated the sheep. Shepherds who have fed themselves and got fat on what the the sheep should be eating. Shepherds who have perverted their positions. Those who were supposed to be God's representatives over God's flock... God's supposed chosen leaders to care, tend, protect, and love the flock. They abandoned their posts. They abandoned the sheep. These shepherds were far from what God had called them to be. Look at chapter 11, verse 17. Woe to my 
worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Again, he doesn't have to explain sword there, but it has to do with judgment. It has to do with retribution. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. It's like having a blind pilot, right? The blind leading the blind is not a good thing. So what do you have here? Woe to those shepherds who are blind, who are maimed, who cannot do their job properly. Look at verse 4. Thus says Yahweh, my God, become, uh, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Because of the shepherds, this flock, this flock is exposed. They will be slaughtered unless something changes. Look at verse 15. Then Yahweh said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. What's he talking about here? God gives the foolish, wicked sheep Foolish, wicked shepherds. When they do not want to follow me, I will raise up a shepherd that will be blind, that will be maimed, and he will lead them astray. This sheep are exposed. These sheep are exposed. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams, and they give empty consolations. This is where they go for help. Therefore, the, she, the people wander like sheep. Why? Because they've gone after foreign gods. They are afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. Two reasons. Abandoned me, and they don't have a true shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. You see the correlation there? Shepherds were leaders. For Yahweh of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like majestic, like, like his majestic steed in battle. God will take stock of the shepherd's malpractice, their carelessness, their negligence. And the funny thing is, he gives them what they want. The sheep wants weak, blind shepherds. And so he says, I'll give them to you. Because you have not followed me. You have not bowed down to me. You have not worshipped me. Clearly these shepherds, these rulers, these leaders have abandoned their God and the duty that God has given them to care for the flock. Against this backdrop of wicked shepherds, against this backdrop of abusive and absent shepherd leadership, God gives a vision of an afflicted shepherd. This is our passage this morning. There are three significant qualities about this shepherd. Number one, in chapter 13, verse 7, we find the shepherd will be slain. Number two, the shepherd will be the God-man. And number three, the shepherd will be struck. They all revolve around the fact that this shepherd would be slain, and there's significance in that which I will point out to you later. He would be divine, and there would be an effect of his death upon his sheep. Now, with all that historical background in mind, let's take a closer look at this passage. The shepherd will be slain for his flock. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Pause there. Sword was an image of war, judgment, 
It was often used to represent anything that results in death. Not just the actual sword, the physical thing, but it was a word, a, a metaphor, a word picture of judgment or war or death. Sword was representative of death to come. I will bring a sword against you, meant people are going to die. For instance, let me use this illustration. Remember Uriah. Who's Uriah? Who is Uriah? Bathsheba's husband. And he was killed by David. In what way? By a sword, right? Because that's what Nathan says. God says through Nathan, you have killed him with a sword. Do you know how he actually dies? They go into battle. There were archers on the roof, on the wall, and they shot him. He died by means of an arrow. So why does God say through Nathan that he died by means of a sword? Because the word sword can be used as an image of death. You have murdered him. You've taken up the sword of judgment and executed him, David. That's what it means. So not literally a sword because David wasn't there. So that entire phraseology is a way to say you've taken the, the sword of execution in your hand and killed a man illegally. Also, the word sword is a sign of judicial power and authority. It executes judgment. You can see this in Exodus chapter 5, but interestingly, you found it in the New Testament. Where do you think it is found? It was preached quite a lot. Maybe this year and last year. Romans chapter 13. Thank you. 13. The government is a sword to execute justice. Not that the government is literally a sword. I think you get the image. Some people do think that they are um, a sword, but that's another discussion. So think death and judicial Judgment. So understand the importance of what is being said here. Awake, arise, stir up, come forth, judicial judgment and death against my shepherd. This is not a request. It's a command. It's a divine command. It's a command made by God that will come to be because it's a prophetical command that God is declaring. So arise, come forth, rise up, awake, O judicial judgment and execution of death upon my shepherd. There is a declaration of divine judgment being given upon the shepherd. And there are those commentators who say at this point, well, this shepherd is actually the shepherd that you read in, verse, in chapter 11. Woe to you, verse 17, my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock, may the sword strike his arm and his right eye. No, that is retribution for being worthless. There is a different kind of judgment. There is no qualification of a worthless shepherd in this context. The only qualification you have is who he is, my shepherd. The one who has a unique relationship with God, and you will see that this my shepherd is defined even further. In other words, God will provide a shepherd. Why? To take the judicial judgment upon the sheep. Remember what God does previously? He judges the sheep and the shepherd. He gives them a wicked shepherd because they have become wicked sheep. But now God says something different. Awake, literally, his righteous judgment upon his shepherd. Why? Well, there's first of all a contrast between 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 4. Thus said Yahweh, my God, becomes shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Where the flock here is to be slain because of the lack of true shepherding. The flock is exposed. Look at verse 7. So I became the shepherd of a flock doomed to be slaughtered by sheep traitors. 
straight does. The flock is exposed. Why? Even though there is a shepherd, the flock is still exposed. They will still die. But here it is different. Here the shepherd will be slain for the sheep. So if the shepherd is slain in place of the sheep, then the sheep do not have to be what? Slain. They don't have to die. This shepherd, my shepherd, will not abandon his flock to be slain by others, but rather he himself will take the judgment upon himself. This is called, in theology, substitution. Where God provides in the place of the sinner one who could receive the judgment. One to receive the punishment. You get that imagery in the sacrifices as well. But that imagery is now transported to a person. My shepherd. When we think gospel and we think substitution, what do we normally think of? Romans, right? New Testament. Christ, as well as the apostles, preached the Old Testament. Paul wrote about substitution from the Old Testament. Because they had that cultural script, they knew exactly what it meant. What we have here is God's declaration that He will provide a shepherd who loves his sheep so much that he would be willing to die as a substitute for his own sheep. Wow. The weight of this truth is that God is giving his flock someone to receive his sword of judgment on their behalf. Which means that if the shepherd is dying in the place of the sheep, then there is no more judgment and death left for the sheep. This judgment will be on the shepherd. It is translated as against in the ESV, but it's literally the word upon in the next line. Awake, O sword, against my sheep, or upon, sorry, my shepherd, upon my shepherd. This means that God cares for his flock so much that he will never abandon his flock even though they were in exile, even though they were in hardship, even though they were under judgment, God always cared for his sheep. But in this case, he cares for them in a specific way by providing a substitute shepherd for them. So in contrast to the other shepherds who did not really care for the flock, this shepherd will care for his flock. How? By being the substitute slain for his sheep. Remember what I said that these prophecies are cumulative. They build upon each other. Ezekiel predates Zechariah by about 50 to 60 years. Turn over to Ezekiel 34. We've been in Ezekiel um, a few times this um, last month. And it is in that general vicinity of the new covenant. And you want to keep that in mind as you read through uh, Ezekiel. The closer you get to chapter 36 and 37, the more it winds up to speak about the coming one um, that fulfills that New Testament uh, covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we have a prophecy of a shepherd. We get the same judgment on the failed shepherds. Those shepherds who have failed in their duty. But there's uh, uh, there's a contrast here. God speaks about his sheep and his responsibility that he will take over his sheep. Take note in verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says Yahweh, God, or sorry, Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have 
been feeding yourselves? Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones. You, but you do not feed the sheep. That sounds familiar, right? It sounds exactly what Zechariah speaks about in chapter 11 through to chapter 12. Because he's quoting Zechariah, uh, sorry, Ezekiel. He's talking about the shepherds of Israel who have abandoned their post and uh, literally ate the sheep, skinned the sheep and taken their wool to cover themselves. Look at this fine. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became wild uh, they became food for the wild beasts my sheep were scattered they wandered all over the mountain and on every hill my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek them were the shepherds yes there's a judgment against the shepherds so why does he say that they didn't have a shepherd because they didn't have a real true shepherd that cared for them so just because you have a person in position doesn't mean you have a true shepherd. Consider that for today as well. God says these guys who were to feed the flock are feeding off the flock. And woe to them who do that. Should be a sermon preached for the pastors and so-called prophets of today. But notice what God says in verse 10, the last line of verse 10. I will rescue my sheep. They can't do it. I will do it. I will rescue my sheep from the mouths, from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Verse 11, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that has been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravens and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. God here identifies himself as the shepherd. The shepherd who will care for his sheep. The shepherd who will protect his sheep. The shepherd who will not expose his sheep to die. So God will provide for them. But take note of that line in verse 14. I will feed them and with, sorry, with good pasture. I will feed them with good pasture. Why good pasture? Because dead sheep do not need pasture. Right? You don't feed dead sheep. You bry them. Right? You don't give dead sheep any feed. Understand that this is not merely a promise for God to take back his people to Israel. That's implicit in it. That's millennial talk. I will fulfill my promise. I've made you a covenant. You're going to get your land. I will keep that. But this is how I'm going to do it. I will become a shepherd to you. I will do it. I will come and seek you. So much for Arminianism that says we seek after God. It is the shepherd who goes after the sheep. Understand that this speaks of how God will seek and care for his sheep. He will provide both the cause and the means of the pasture. Why pasture? I said it already. 
Because dead sheep do not need pasture. Dead things do not need food. There's a sense that he's taking them into a pasture because they have life. They are alive. They're not dead. So they need nourishment. And so he will provide that ongoing nourishment for them. Now, keep both Zechariah and Ezekiel in mind as we walk into John 10. And I want to show you that Jesus speaks with a cultural script in mind as he speaks concerning the shepherd. Look at verse 8. I'm going to read from verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door for the sheep. In other words, there's one entrance. One entrance. It is me. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. In other words, they're not true shepherds. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Why does he repeat that? Take note. If anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved. So the door relates to what? Salvation. I am the door. If the sheep come through me, they are saved. Look at the next line. And will go in and out and find what? Posture. Or pasture, the Americans would say. They will go in and out and find pasture. What did Jesus say? I am the door, and if anybody comes in through me, he will be saved. What do you have when you are saved? You have life. So if you have life, what are you going to need? Nourishment. What does Jesus provide? Uh, They will go in and out and find what? Nourishment. Pasture. Why give them pasture? Because they have Life, they are no longer dead. So if you are dead, you come to the door, you enter by means of the door, you get saved, you have life, and because you have life, you will find pasture. That is Ezekiel 34. That's exactly what Ezekiel speaks about, that I will provide them pasture. Pasture, not a pasture. What you see here is an understanding that the the pasture provided by the shepherd can only be found in the shepherd. And that is what Ezekiel says. I will feed them. They're not going to find it on themselves or by themselves. There is only one place that they will find pasture. That specific word carries over into the New Testament and Jesus uses it of himself. I will give them pasture. What is Jesus saying? I'm the one that Ezekiel 34 speaks about. What does that mean? There is a connection between knowing Jesus as shepherd and the life that he gives by coming through the door and the posture that he gives to those who have come to life by means of the door. Again, dead sheep do not need pasture. Therefore, being saved implies that you have life and therefore if you have life, you need pasture and nourishment and Jesus himself provides that to his sheep. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Wait a minute. Where did we hear that there's a death of a shepherd? Zechariah chapter 13. My shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my, or upon my shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Because all of the other shepherds in Zechariah were wicked shepherds. Everybody in, in, in Ezekiel were wicked shepherds. But there's one good shepherd. Why is he good? Because he takes his own life as a substitute for his sheep. Jesus is saying that I am that shepherd that you were talking about. Remember they were reading Greek. The Greek Old Testament by this time. The same words used in Ezekiel and Zechariah concerning the shepherd is the same words found here that Jesus says that I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. 
there's a historical significance here. The Pharisees were the shepherds of the day, quote-unquote. They were the leaders of the day. They were to feed God's flock and care for God's flock, but they beat them and abandoned them and exposed them. And Jesus says, these guys are robbers and thieves. They are not true shepherds. They're hirelings. They don't own the flock. They have no personal investment in the flock. They care not for the flock. But I care for my own. Remember Ezekiel? Where God makes personal, um, takes personal possession of the flock? Jesus uses that, own, that words of himself. My sheep. They are mine. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Now look down at verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take, to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. How can we connect this to Zechariah? Because the charge is given to the shepherd. Awake my sword upon my shepherd. Jesus says here that this charge I have received from my father. What charge? To give up my life and to raise it up again. This charge I received from my father. Jesus speaks with a cultural script in mind and doesn't have to explain all the nuances. All he does is use these yuk words that should evoke within them an understanding of what he means. Look at their response in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews. Why? Because he was speaking about a shepherd. Why? Because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Why go to John chapter 9? Because, remember the testimony of the blind man? No one, no one has opened the eyes of the blind man. We've never seen this happen. There's only one person that can do that. And the prophecies tell us that there will be one who will come in the name of the Lord and he will liberate the, the, the weak. And he will give sight to the blind. So if it's that one, he is God. So they're connecting the dots. If it's that guy who opened the eyes of the blind, then he must be what? God. They are starting to see it, and that's why there's a division. Some of them are saying, hang on, this is not just a discussion about shepherdology. Jesus has just made the claim that he's one with the Father by saying that they are my sheep. Because God makes that same claim of his own sheep. There's a consistent prophetical voice that God will send the Son as a shepherd, and that shepherd will be the Savior of his sheep. Now look at verse 16. I have other sheep that, not, that are not of this fold. I must also bring them in. And they will listen to my voice. So that there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock. He gives his life for his flock. Now verse 12. If I can only find it. He who has a hired hand and he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep exposed or leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own. Did you catch that? He does not own the sheep. Again, Jesus is making a connection to Ezekiel chapter 34. I will find my sheep. He owns his sheep. The shepherd who God provides is the substitute for his own sheep. This shepherd is Jesus. He alone can bear the judgment of for the flock. This passage in Zechariah is a prophecy of the coming shepherd who will be the substitute for his flock and will receive the sword of judgment on their behalf. Secondly, I know my time is up, but I'm going to take some time to finish this off. The shepherd will come as the God-man. Go back to Zechariah chapter 13. You may not be convinced that the shepherd is Jesus. Not yet. Hold on. Look at verse 7 again. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. That's a declaration, a decree. This is something that will happen. Against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts. This is not only his shepherd, but there's a clear reference to the humanity of the shepherd. You would expect that, right? A shepherd is a man. But look again at verse 7. Against or upon the man who stands next to me. Hmm. There's a significant connection made here. Firstly, God says that the shepherd is a masculine man. The Hebrew word used here is literally the manly man as opposed to the feminine man or the feminine person, the woman. Gender matters, even mattered back then. And, and he says this will be a masculine man, a man of man. You're not going to confuse him with a broken wrist guy. He's a man. But look further what he says. This man stands next to me. Compute that. Think about what he's saying. A man stands next to me. Now there is some metaphorical allusion here. In the Old Testament period and during that time when you use that phraseology, the man who stands next to me generally has to do with your associate or the man who's equal to you, or the man who shares your authority, generally on the right hand. But God is saying here, that this man has a unique position. Hebrew, the Hebrew literally says, the man who is my equal. The one who is in close proximity in relation to me. It literally means to bind together. One author says it this way, God is speaking of, quote, one as my companion, one as my associate, one as my friend, one as my confidant, one as the one alone united with me, the one alone whom I have and is associated with myself. He himself is my equal, end quote. Wow. So let's put that together. This shepherd who will receive the judicial judgment of God is the man who is equal with God. Did you get that? The man who stands on the same foot as God. The man who has the same essence as God himself. Wow. The very essence and quality and essence is of God is in a man who is a shepherd who will die for his sheep. That's the gospel. In, 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 in Zechariah, the shepherd is a man who has a supreme position. What's the significance of this? Well, whose flock is it? God's, of course. Who cares for his flock? God, of course. So who does God provide as a shepherd for his flock? No one else but the man who is God. When Jesus says that I am the good shepherd, he's not speaking in isolation of this passage. 
He's saying, I am that one. That is why they pick up stones later and want to stone him because they recognize this man is making himself equal with God. In fact, that is what they say. And then he goes ahead and says, yes, I and the Father are one in the same section. You, you, you correctly understand the illusion that I'm making. I am saying by means of my shepherdology, by means of the fact that I own the sheep, by means of the fact that I'm equal with the Father, that I am that one. So yes, I am God. John 10 tells us that Jesus is both man and God. Ezekiel chapter 13 tells us that the shepherd would be a man who is also God. John 10, 15 says, I know the Father and the Father knows me. You know what that means? That there's an intimate, unbreakable relationship and union between us. We share the same standing. Jesus has the same position. He possesses the same unique position and equality with the Father. So when he says in John chapter 10 that I and the Father are one, he's saying that we are in close communion. We are inseparable. We are one. That is what Zechariah speaks about here. And then in verse 30, just in, miss, just in case they miss the point, he says, no, yes, uh, you are absolutely right. You want to stone me for that reason. I and the Father are one. This statement in John 10 is not divorced of the discussion of Jesus as shepherd. You cannot find a closer relationship between the connection between the divine shepherd and God than is found here in Zechariah chapter 13, which Jesus quotes of himself. to see what I can skip. The one who would be struck would be afflicted as God. This is another proof that God will become a man and indeed die for his people. This is, look at chapter 12, verse 10. <clears throat> And I will pour out, but now that should alert you to something. Where do you find the language? Ezekiel chapter 36, Jeremiah chapter 31. They precede him. I will pour out on the house of David and, in the, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. What is that? That is new covenant language. Again, not in isolation of the previous antecedent revelation. Take note again. I will pour out when? When they look on me, on him whom they have, what? Pierced. They shall mourn for him. God toggles between him and me. He's speaking of himself. And then he speaks of him who will be pierced. Take note of what he says. I will pour out, so there's a day coming, when spirit and grace and, and peace and mercy will be poured out on them. This is new covenant language. When? When they look on me on whom they have pierced. That day will be a day that will demonstrate that I will be seen, physically seen by people. On that day, chapter 13, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. What is that day? It's the day of Jesus Christ. The arrival of the Son of God, who is the shepherd. We are in that section of new covenant language prophecy. Zechariah is taking all that Jeremiah and Ezekiel have said and is pulling it together saying, yes, it is coming. That day will take place and it will take place when the shepherd comes. 
when that one who is God is able to be seen and he will be pierced for his people. Finally, the shepherd will be struck. Look at the last part. Awake, O shepherd, against my sheep, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. If you read that verse, that should immediately spark Matthew, right? New Testament. Why? Because Jesus quotes it of himself. This is why this entire section relates to Jesus. You cannot miss it. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. There is an interesting choice of words here. The word strike means to smite, to strike to death, to strike so that death would occur. It's pretty evident. The shepherd will be struck to death. And then there's a correlation to that. The sheep will be scattered. Now turn to Matthew chapter 26. I'll end on this. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Where's that from? Well, Zechariah chapter 30. The exact same quote. What is Jesus doing? I am that shepherd. You are that sheep. Now look further. God says, strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And in the whole land declares Yahweh. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire. And refine them as one refines silver. And test them as gold is tested. Pause there. I don't know if you caught that. Now at this stage. Commentators say, whoa, 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 that is not messianic prophecy. Because now you have the two-third language. It's definitely uh, metaphorical. This has got nothing to do with the people now. This is not the New Testament anymore. Now we are not talking about fulfillment prophecy. Let's look at this. In the whole land. Is that literal land? No. He's talking about the people of the land. Why? Because the two-thirds that are cut off is not the land that will be cut off, but the people of the land who will be cut off. How do I know that? Because the one-third are those who will be left alive. The land doesn't stay alive. People stay alive, right? So one-third is going to remain and going to be spared, whereas the rest of them are going to die. What God is doing is using metaphorical language to give you a picture. A lot will go lost. And a small amount, a third, will be saved. Not a literal third. He's using mathematical languages to, a language to say, listen, there's going to be a small amount that will be saved. They will be remnant, But a lot. In comparison to the third, the two thirds will not. They will perish. This one third, the small amount, who will be my people, I will put them in fire. Isn't that judgment? No. Notice what he says. And refine them as one refines silver. What do you do when you refine silver and gold? You burn off the muck, right? So it gets to a really hot temperature. You burn off the junk. It comes to the top. You scoop that off. And you've got pure gold or pure silver. That is what God does for the one third. So what is God saying? They will be saved by the death of the shepherd. And when I strike the shepherd, they will be scattered. In other words, there's going to be a continual scattering. You know what the word that James uses of the scattered? is the same word used here in the, in the LXX, the diaspora. Those who are scattered. Why? Because of the gospel. There's a connection. These apostles and prophets do not write in isolation. And what 
Ezekiel is saying is that God will refine those who come to him. They will be a small amount, but they will be refined by hardship and affliction. What is God saying? That when you come by means of the shepherd and you become his own sheep, he will refine you through hardship and affliction, but you will remain faithful. How do I know that? Look at the next line. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, Yahweh is my God. They won't abandon God and God will not abandon them is what he's saying. What you have here is the gospel in its entirety in the Old Testament. The shepherd will be struck, the sheep will be scattered, and even for us today, there will be a scattering, there will be ongoing affliction in our lives. Why? Because God refines us through affliction. So if you're an unbeliever, you don't need pasture, you need to come to the door. If you're a believer, you are through the door, you're in the pasture, you need to graze because you're in the shepherd. This is the beauty of the gospel. It is not isolated messages. The entirety of the scriptures exalt our Savior, the shepherd. Let us exalt his name forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for such a tremendous word and such tremendous beauty of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. There is no greater joy than to see you exalt your name through your son in the sacrifice of our shepherd and savior Jesus Christ. There are those who need saving, Lord, and we pray for them. They do not know Jesus. They have not come through the door. They do not have the blessing of pasturing in the shepherd. Save them. For those who are sheep, those who are your own, we pray that their grazing would be sweet and their nourishment would be fulfilling. That the words of your mouth, your prophecies, your word would so nourish our souls that we would never depart from you. Thank you, Lord, for such kind words and such grace upon our lives as we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.